You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight is our first installment of our Summer of 86 Retrospective Series, where we're going to take a look back once a month at our favorite films released in the summer of 1986. Tonight, we're talking about Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. Children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission for God. All right, sweethearts, you heard your man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. How great was the spiritual war? How great depression? It's our lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, musician Paul Williams. Hello, hello, hello. Are you excited to finally be starting our Summer of 86 retrospective series here, man? Are you excited? We definitely got some interesting content coming up for you guys, and hope you enjoy all of it. We're going to do this once a month um, for the next four months over the course of the summer. We're going to do it May through August, and we're going to do yep. our regular episodes... You know, in, in between these, but once a month, we're going to take a look back at a movie that was released in 1986. Uh, you know, it's exciting times, man. Uh, 86 is a really packed year. A lot of great stuff came out in 86. Yeah, we were we were just weed lads at, the, at that point in time. I don't know if anybody listened to our last episode that we did on Friday the 13th. I think it was episode like 9 or 10. Um, I gave a, a general overall view of what the series was to me, but Paul, this is the first time you've talked about Friday the 13th. Uh, are you a fan? Yeah. What's your history with this franchise? Oh, I love it. It's, it's, I'd say it's my favorite, favorite slasher franchise. It always has been. Part six, Jason Lives, uh, really got me into the, the entire franchise. Part one is, is, is a classic. Two and three are good. I mean, I enjoyed two and three, but I think when when you start with four, there was something special about that movie, you know, and I kind of feel the same way about six. There's just something special about that movie. Four was kind of like, you know, that's where Jason Voorhees, he's finally put together. He's the Jason Voorhees we all know, but that's kind of the end of the the redneck uh, killer in the woods, Jason Voorhees. And part six is yeah. where we start to transition into uh, what I always called zombie Jason or undead zombie Jason. Jason. Yeah, whatever you want to call this yeah. Jason. I think the fans, I think we've all just called him zombie Jason for like forever, ever since yeah, this movie well, came Zombie out. Jason is, yeah, I mean, it's more fitting. Yeah, whereas in like, you know, the first four films, he was a mongoloid kid that grew up in the woods that killed people. That was just really hard to kill. There was no real supernatural... Yeah. Well, it was always kind of hinted that there was maybe some su- supernatural elements involved. Like, you know, like even in the def- first movie. There, there was nothing definite, you know. You know, this movie, it's completely, like, unmistakable. Like, you can't question, like, yes, this, this has supernatural elements in it for sure. So look at those movies overall in whole 
and to see the progression of, of the character. In my personal opinion, I think the two, and I will, I will say this until they, I find a better one, the two best-looking Jason Voorheeses are from 6 and 7. They are great. But those are the great zombie Jasons. I liked 1 through 4 Jason just a little bit better than zombie Jason. With like the baghead? The baghead Jasons? Well, no. I mean, well, baghead Jason, that was only part 2. There was no, like, you know, yeah. he and he lost the bag. He took the bag off. Part 3, he runs around without a mask for the first half yeah, of the movie until does. he kills the Shelly character and then he gets the hockey mask in part three. And then, of course, in four, he's wearing the hockey mask the entire time. Uh, the thing I really do mm-hmm. like about the zombie Jason look, though, in six and in seven, really, really seven, they do the makeup where you can see all the ways that Jason's died, like on it. You know what I mean? That's cool. The one thing, uh, there was one shot where, where he's walking through the woods or whatever. And they get a shot of the back. I think it's even shown when he's coming out of the water. Oh, you can see his spine? Uh, and you can see his spine. Yeah, I always thought, I was like, that is so awesome. Well, you yeah, can see his spine. Really- you see, like, the crack in the in like the propeller at the end of this movie. You see the damage of how he died yeah. in this movie. He's wearing the chain around his neck the entire time. Like, you know, he's got the yeah. Corey Feldman uh, machete hack in the top of his mask. Yeah, in the, the cut. Yeah, and see, that's another thing that is also in part six as well. They do have that crack in the mask. Let's go back to four, where the fans really loved four. Four was a big hit. I think up until that point, four was the biggest of the sequels. And a lot of people liked it. And then five came out. And, (laughs) you know, spoiler warnings for the entire franchise, because we're going to be talking about all of them. Part five, Jason isn't even the killer. And that pissed a lot of people off when they saw it. Oh, I know it pissed me off. Uh, to me, and, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't intended like this, but I mean, and I found out that, you know, it wasn't Jason. To me, that was kind of like a big screw you, dude. A lot of fans saw it that way. And I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of people got their panties in a, in a bind about that and got a little, got a little too dramatic for it. My, my problem with five is not that Jason isn't the killer. It's just, I don't, I don't think it's a very good movie. It's my least favorite of the Paramount um, Friday the 13th films, which is the first, the first eight. The fans' reaction to it kind of ended up hurting Part 6 a lot. Everybody yeah. likes Part 6. I mean, the fans, the fandom of Friday the 13th. Part 6 is a big movie. Man, it was the, it was the first Friday the 13th film to gross under $20 million. And, they, you know, Paramount, which has kind of always treated this franchise with disdain... You know, because it's horror and it's gore and it's looked down on in Hollywood and, you know, people that want to make art films. It's great. You can have both. There's room for both art and trash. I don't know. It's been a cash cow for Paramount. Part 6 cost $3 million, which was pretty big for a Friday the 13th movie in 86. Even if you make only 19.5 or 19.4, whatever, however millions it made, that's still enough money to where it is profitable. Well, like you just said, you know, five, five really hurt the series. Five is probably one of my least favorite ones. I would also say that there are elements about five that I do like. Oh, yeah. No, like, I'm not, I, I'm not like saying this whole, shit from start to finish. You know, like the whole Tommy Jarvis thing where, like, he's still making the masks. You know, I kind of, I kind of like that. The, char- the characters are always switching out. It's always a different group of, of teenagers. 
yeah. four, five, and six all feature the Tommy Jarvis character. Yeah, they're the only three films in the whole series that actually have one cohesive character. Well, yeah, they have the the, the three because Adrian King was who played Alice was in one, and she she got killed off in two. You know, this is the first time that we've had like a a, a storyline that we were we're following a different character outside of Jason. We're also following a character that has had two other previous encounters with Jason. Dude killed his mom. You know, and that's another thing. They never even they never even said anything about what actually happened to Tommy Jarvis's sister. Tommy and his family are introduced as as Corey Feldman in part four. And then after yeah. part four, that goes into part five where he he's a little messed up from his, you know, dealings with Jason. He is in, like, I guess, like a halfway house where he's going from mental asylum to being introduced back into society. At the end of that film, it's kind of left that maybe Tommy's going to pick up the Jason Voorhees mantle and continue the killings. But then in part yeah. six, that is completely, completely dropped. Like, you can skip five. Wasn't the vibe kind of left off in part four, you know, with the way that ended, that Tommy Jarvis was going to become... The next Jason Voorhees. It does yeah. kind of give you that vibe, but then part five goes back and, and repeats that same ending again. So it's like you can you can almost completely skip five and go straight to six, and you're yeah. not going to miss anything. I really didn't uh, see anywhere where any explanation was given either on why Corey Philman didn't actually do part six. If he would have actually came back in part six as Tommy Jarvis. Well, he wouldn't have been old enough, with, though, dude, because those movies are only two years apart. He would have only been like eight yeah, or 10 yeah, or 12 true. or I don't know how old he was in part four. Well, but, he would have, I mean, he would have already done Lost Boys. No, y'all, Lost Boys came out the year after this film. With 87. So, yeah, so yeah, he would have been a year. Yeah. yeah, he would have been a year younger. So I don't think you could do this movie with Corey. No, Feldman. you couldn't. You know, no, not with this story. I mean, you could have done something with a kid, but I do like the idea that we're continuing with this character and continuing with Jason. And we're, we're seeing this character later yeah. in his life. Part six. This is kind of a, a new direction for the entire series. The director, yeah. Tom McLaughlin, I really liked the way that he did. And he, you know, he keeps saying on the DVD commentaries, infusing this with a goth, a gothic feel, like that gothic horror look. And he, he kept talking about like Edgar Allan Poe and things like that. I mean, you really sense that in this movie with like all the fog. Yeah, yeah you do. And the tree. Well, not only that, but I mean, like it, it just all all around, like like nineteen forties and fifties, you know, kind of like cinema. With the daughter Megan and the interaction with her and her her father, the sheriff, it almost has like this nineteen forties kind of like feel to it almost. Well, I know, know, I know that's what he was going even, for, like, but I don't I don't really know if yeah. I if I feel that that was what was captured. Like I know that's what he was going for in terms of the dialogue, trying to make it feel forties. Yeah. But it it there's no way you can think of anything else other than the eighties when you're watching this movie. It kind of, it really worked. Like, I think this movie came out at a very, very appropriate time for this, for this franchise. This had been the film they had made before they did part five. I feel like the Friday. This would have been part five. Yeah. I feel like the Friday (laughs) franchise would have, would have gone down a different path because this is the first time that we've actually had comedy is actually in the kill scenes. The, The director actually asked when he was approached about the film, if he could, 
you know, like add comedy to it. And they were like, as long as you don't make fun of Jason. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's really ahead of the curve because the next year, Freddy does the same thing in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Well, that's like that's that's a huge hit. And Freddy is doing that in his third film, mid to late 80s. That's the big horror franchise, and it kind of takes over from Friday the 13th. You know, this was the first film that I can think of in the slasher genre that that did this with comedy. Uh, this and um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 are really kind of the predecessors and the genesis for ideas that went on to be Scream. You know, this this is a lot more toned down than Scream. I'm not saying that. I'm not I'm not comparing the two films, but it's kind of the genesis of the idea. Okay, and guys, on that note, we're gonna take uh, a quick break and we're gonna listen to the trailer for Friday the Thirteenth Part Six: Jason Lives, and we'll be back to spoil the crap out of this film. Welcome back. We're here talking about Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. Man, dude, what did, what did you think about the way this film started? I uh, I loved it, man. Like, I think the whole gothic scenery and, you know, uh, the whole cemetery. and well, it, it gives this, like, almost, like, Frankenstein-ish kind of feel to it. I don't know. It feels more Hammer than it feels universal to me. It doesn't feel like... Frankenstein, like Borderless Karloff. I know there's a Karloff nod in the movie, but it doesn't feel like those Universal films, those old black and whites. Those are like so. I feel like they're so well, yeah, outdated. Even in, the, even in the commentary, you know, Tom McLaughlin says that you know he was trying to go for for that old Universal look. Like when you're updating that look, How, I feel like the Hammer the Hammer films already updated that look. So now he's taking that Hammer yeah. look and kind of updating that again. Whereas like. I mean, it's still the same thing as Universal movies because the Hammer films were nothing but like you know Dracula and Frankenstein, and they they were just kind of spinoffs of those Universal films anyway. And right away, the thing that I like the most about this is in the first couple shots, you're already like, "Wow, this looks better than all of the other Friday the Thirteenth films that came before it, with maybe the exception of four. Four four was really beautiful. Well." For a low budget horror film, four was beautiful. Yeah, they they really did. And I really love the shot where uh, also where they're coming down the road and like the old the old mangy dog. Oh yeah, is eating like whatever that is in the road. Yeah, like, whatever roadkill got it. I liked how we w- we went from that visual to the truck coming into the shot, and of course in the truck is Tommy Jarvis and his other buddy. Man, do you- Horace. Do you kind of get in the in the beginning, like when I first watched this, and you know, actually, like the entire time I saw this as a kid, I always for whatever reason, I always thought they were, they were escaped from a middle a middle hospital, you know, because the way they are, they're two buddies. They're like, yeah, we're two middle patients. We're gonna go, you know what I mean? It kind of sets it up where it's, it's like they're ex- they've escaped. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe you know, maybe with the the way it's set up, like with this. 
the scenery, the lightning and all that, and the way the truck comes flying by. Yeah, because they're like tearing ass down the road, and you have no idea who these yeah. people are yet. Because Tommy Jarvis is played by a different actor for the third time. You know, but we do find out this is tar- Tommy, and his big his I guess his big plan is that he's going to burn Jason? He's going to dig up his body in this graveyard, and he's going to set him on fire. The thing yep. I love most about this whole beginning sequence is that, you know, Tommy's trying to do the right thing. You know, he's he's trying to put closure in his life. I like that. The but simple I mean, don't fact. You, don't you think that taking that closure is a little, little to the extreme? He's not exactly what I would call a well-adjusted human being here, man. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I understand it, though. Like, even as a sane person, like, I understand you want to get closure. This guy killed your mom. He ruins your life. I, I understand it. And what no I like, fucking body knows what happened to your sister. Once again, no fucking body has a clue what happened to her. Well, she's not important. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> nobody, nobody cares about this. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're just going to drop a line like, oh, yeah, the sister went to such and such. Like, you know, obviously she was still sane after part four. She moved on with her life and shit. <laughs> She's like, uh, yes, I have two kids. Uh, I actually teach uh, kindergarten uh, here in uh, L.A. So, But no, I, what I like about this is that he's digging this guy up to get closure. And in fact, what he does is the exact thing that he is worried about in the first place is that this guy is coming, comes back. Like, I like that tragic nature of this character Like in the very beginning. What he fears, yeah. he ends up opening Pandora's box himself, you know? Never really thought about it like that. I mean, I, I have thought about it like, damn, dude, you you are the dude that does kind of bring him back. Oh, no, yeah, everybody in the movie dies. Stupid. It's his fault, right? Yeah, it's your fault. Yeah, yeah. It's Tommy Jarvis's fault. That, I mean, yeah, I can see why everybody wants to blame Tommy Jarvis for this. If you'd have totally not dug this motherfucking maggot-infested son of a bitch up and jabbed a metal rod through his fucking chest out of anger, and then, you know, lightning, of course, struck it. I guess you couldn't really plan for lightning striking the same place twice <laughs> and bringing Jason before he's back to life. Well, I don't know. But, See, yeah. they they drop a line later in the movie where one of the, one of the sheriff's deputies is like, "Happy Friday the 13th. Well, I started thinking about it. Yeah. Don't, you don't know what time it is at night when they're digging the grave up, but technically, if it's past midnight, that would have been Friday the 13th. So That's maybe. Some supernatural elements are into here to play. I don't know. I you know it, the movie doesn't say that. I'm reading into the movie. So when he puts that metal rod into Jason, stabbing him, when he just kind of loses his shit, he's just super mad. He wants to stab the dead body, and when he leaves that rod in, and the lightning hits, man, the lightning hit is a cool effect. I mean, for yeah, 1986, really dude, I was watching this on Blu-ray, which the film grain on the Blu-ray is incredible. But, dude, that effect still holds up. It, how the rod turns, like, the bright blue and shit. But uh, if you notice, the, the the rod actually has, like, this thing on top of it. It's, like, part of the top of the fence, I guess. Oh, no, it's the bottom part of the fence. Or the bottom part of the fence. Yeah, because the top yeah. part's the spear. The first time the lightning hits it, like, it, it looks smaller. And then the second time it hits it, all that's left is like this melted ball of metal. Yeah, and they have put that nice like little smoke effect coming out of the top. I thought that was cool, man. Yeah. And he's got to reach in and grab his little gloves up to grab it out of there. 
Yeah, I thought that was again like this movie has those little attentions to detail that just make it. I don't think it, like attention to detail is going to make a, mo- a bad movie great, but on rewatches, I really do appreciate it. And another thing is, if you, uh, you look at the second time the lightning strikes, that tree branch also falls. Sparks fly everywhere. It's a really cool scene. I mean, it it looks cool. When you, it is. If you're if you see this and you're like a young teenager or a preteen, this this scene blows your mind. This is really awesome. And the makeup sure. on Jason looks great. Like when he his corpse comes out of the grave, like dead corpse zombie Jason looks pretty fucking badass. The makeup is really pretty fucking stellar. And I will say this: you have to be a hell of a man. To let a damn maggot get that close to your motherfucking eyeball. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the close-up shot where he opens his eye? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> There's that maggot in the top. Seriously. <laughs> the, top, the top frame. That's of, that little maggot's, like, just wiggling around up there. And- you know, when you're talking about, like, that the gothic look, that 50s, that monster movie feeling, you know, that's that's what this movie has. It's got, like, that big eye opening. You know, you didn't see that in any other Friday the 13th film before that because this one actually, they Uh -uh. put a lot of style and they put a lot of time and effort into things. It is a Friday the 13th, okay? I know we're not talking about Citizen Kane here, but there are things to really appreciate in this film that it, man, they really stretched their budget in this movie. I really did almost like the Frankenstein-ish, zombie-ish walking that Jason does when he comes out of the grave. He's slow when he walks, but all his turns and things when he's in the hunt are very, very fast, quick, quick jerks. And he'll snap, kind of like snap into place and stare at somebody. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I think that's really, and that's, that's kind of unsettling. Tommy Jarvis has to have like the worst luck ever. And it's funny that you mentioned what you mentioned earlier about Friday the 13th tying into all this. Because if you actually think about it, he goes there on... What could be Friday the 13th, right? Or Eve of Friday the 13th. He stabs Jason. Lightning just so happens to strike Jason. Bring him back to life. Now this dude's done doused Jason in gas. He's getting ready to light a match, and all of a sudden it starts raining. It's like, you know what? Now that does kind of make total sense, because it's like, bad luck? Like, you want to talk about bad fucking luck, really? He, when he when he lights the match, like he, and it's pouring down rain, but he still tries to light the other one. He's just like, well, maybe. Oh shit, no, I'm fine. Maybe it'll just spark. What did you think about the James Bond esque kind of title opening? I thought that was cool as shit. The thing I like the most about it is it sets the tone right away for this film. We know this shit's ridiculous. Just have fun with us, all right? If you like this series. Just enjoy it. Yeah, we're going to do some fun shit. Hang, hang on. Hang on. We're going to do this. Here's the big thing about this film, too. The, the camp is no longer Camp Crystal Lake. It's been renamed Forest Green. Camp Forest Green. I do like how they've tried to make, you know, because Jason has been dead and we've had some time pass since four. They give you a good idea that, like, maybe Jason's been dead for, like, 10 or 15 years or 20 years or whatever Whatever the decade or so of time. I mean, what would you say? I mean, because I I would say Tommy Jarvis would probably be about fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, I would. I would say at least ten years has passed. 
and I yeah, like we'll go we'll go ten years. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the whole the whole point of what I'm getting at is that they did this really good job of building a myth here of Jason. Like all the people, all the characters in the movies, the kids are like, oh yeah, well Jason's like a a mythic figure, and all the kids know about Jason in the town, and I, I like that. Yeah. It kind of brings it, you know, it makes yeah, they it almost build them. Well, they, I think I feel like they treat it like a like an urban legend. You know, it it is a myth to them. Like all these characters know who is attacking them. It's like, oh, maybe it's that Jason guy. Oh, it's Jason. Oh, hey, you want to play Camp Blood and we can uh, yeah. <laughs> see who doesn't get killed by Jason. I mean, they do that a little bit in uh, what is it, Part Two, where they had the campfire scene, and they 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 try to do that yeah. a little bit there. But I mean, at that point, like. He was still a myth to us. We didn't know what Jason was, but it's fun going into this movie. I, I really, that beginning part of, of part four, where it like until like there's a story or there's a myth around here. Oh, you're talking about the yeah, montage in the beginning of part four? Yeah, yeah, the montage. Man, yeah, I've or, always loved. You'd always thought that was cool as shit. Yeah, they do it in four, and I think it's uh, seven. They do another another montage in in seven. Uh, you know, I mean, those are cool, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's more like for the audience. This is done just for the, the characters in the movie. We're the audience and we know what's going on on screen. We know that Jason's hunting these guys and, and now the characters in the movie, they know that Jason's hunting them. You know, it it just, it adds something new to the franchise. It's, it makes it fun. It makes it bigger and it makes it kind of like, Ooh, the I don't know. I like the idea of the uh, the adults keeping this keeping this a secret. We're the small yeah. town. We're we're portraying this constant image of good, you know. And it turns yeah. out that no, like we're not good. We're just lying to you know. It's it's adults are evil in these movies, and the teenagers are the ones that are right. Lying to ourselves about this movie is too. Is this is also the first one. That actually has kids at a summer camp. Yeah, no, the kids the kids are actually yeah in the camp this time, which is really weird because like I think in part one the kids hadn't arrived yet, in part two it was just a it was a it was a camp for camp counselors, and then the the rest of them have just been like kids going out to you know to cabins in the woods and hanging out and getting killed. I know the director said he wanted to add like he wanted to add a, a level of tension by adding the kids there. But man, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like to me, every time I've watched this movie, it's never been about adding a level of danger. It's always just been like, man, dude, Jason Voorhees is cool. I was growing up when these movies were coming out and man, I, these yeah. are the film. I always wanted to see these movies, you know, like I couldn't, that's part of the appeal to them. Yeah. They don't really ever put the kids in danger. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they put one of them in maybe danger, the Nancy little girl that comes up later in the movie. But for really, for the most part, you know, the kids are there kind of for comic relief. I think the kids completely fit into the whole cohesion of the story because it's supposed to be a summer camp. And that kind of goes all the way back to the root, the whole franchise. And I think by them adding the kids there, that just that just made it feel more like wow this this is a, a proper summer camp. Yeah, what the director wanted to do with them in terms of like adding tension, I don't think he achieved that necessarily because like all the scenes like you have the little boys under the bed and they're like, "What did you want to be when you grew up?" 
You know what I mean? Like outside yeah. of the one little girl that looks like uh, Carol Ann from um, Poltergeist. <laughs> Poltergeist. Yeah, you know what I mean. The Nan- the Nancy girl in the movie. Outside of her, she looks so so much like Caroline from Poltergeist. Yeah, I mean, like really, the kids are really just there for the comic relief. Like even when they first show up, yeah. like the people get off the bus and they're just like, "Yep, they're your problem now, motherfuckers," <laughs> and they take off. Yeah, because that girl's like picking up the the like lemon yellow football and shit. What, what do you think of Court's awesome outfit, man? What do you think of those? Uh, what do you think of those jeans and that uh, that awesome Walkman that is like attached to his hip and constantly on his ears? I want I wanted to be the guy when I was a kid. What, dude? Like seriously, I know. Like man, I know this is a movie, but who in the eighties constantly wore a Walkman? The the pants didn't really bother me, and the Walkman didn't really bother. I guess the Walkman did bother me a little bit, but you know what really bothered me the most? Was the fucking uh, the 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 sweatshirt that it looked like somebody took a pair of scissors and cut a V neck into? Well, I mean that's how all his clothes look. It looked like the dude fell into a shredder, and it's like, well, you know what? We only tear up cotton, dude. So these jeans and this t shirt are fucked. You'll be all right though. <sighs> you know what the most sad thing is about getting old is that I was agreeing with Sheriff Sheriff Garris. The entire movie, the the father in the movie, <laughs> I was everything that was coming out of his mouth. I was like, "Yeah, tell that little punk teenager that shit," because <laughs> he's even like, "Dude, like, what? Do you not do you not have a, a sewing machine at home? Like, what what the fuck is going on with your outfit?" I just wanted to be like, "Yeah, right. What is going on with that?" And just like the Megan character, when we get introduced, Sheriff Garris's daughter. Man, she is kind of a, you know, she's a spoiled little fucking uh, a bitch, kind of, man. She's like a little teenage bitch. The way she talks to her dad in she a come, disrespectful manner like that. She yeah. comes across as a little easy. Yeah, she, I mean, well, you know, she does. But, I mean, who could resist Tommy Jarvis's charms, man? I mean, he's so he's so dreamy. Like, he he meets this chick one time. You get this goddamn Romeo and Juliet romance going on with him. Fuck the whole Romeo and Juliet thing. Like the whole thing is, is that this guy is possibly a killer. Like it makes complete sense. Like the actual story of why this guy would be locked up is completely logical. And her father, actually, everything he's saying is right. They actually find people dead throughout the movie, and the cops think that it's Tommy Jarvis trying to get them to believe that Jason's back and he's killing these people. Which makes complete they're just, they're, sense. They're blaming the right. Well, they're blaming the right person, but in the wrong way. Let's you know, going through the movie a little bit uh, further. Let's you know, let's talk about some of the kills here. Uh, the scene when Tony Goldwyn and uh, the director's wife, I think her name's Nancy Mc, uh, Nancy McLaughlin, when those two yeah, are in the man. car and they get attacked in that uh, VW Bug. Man, that's. That's probably like those are two of my favorite murders in the entire film. The first time you actually see Jason kind of give like warnings, like, "Look, I really don't want to fuck you up, but if you keep messing around, I'm going to kill you." It, it's not like he wants He's to like, be left alone. I think it's more of a I want to defend my territory. I want to pick a fight. Well, no, yeah, I think I he's no, I think he's actually defending his territory. Like if you watch it, he's standing like right there. He's like, yeah. "This is Crystal Lake." This is my home. I'm standing my ground. I'm if if you bring ground. your car any closer in here, I'm going to kill all of you. They could have left if they had just turned around, 
and drove back the way they came, they they would have been fine. And I'm saying, dude, if that big asshole was there going forward, that same big asshole is going to be there going back. Well, no, it's not a hole. They they say that it's like a, a there's a gully on either side of the road. A gully. Yeah. So if they go into it, the the car will get stuck. It's an excuse for the man to be like, no, let's just go run him over, and I'll uh, I'll get a gun and I'll shoot him because I'm a dude, and that's what God. dudes do. A God. God. Is that what you call that thing he pulls out of the glove compartment box? We had cap guns bigger than that when we were kids. Dude, it's Jason Voorhees, man. It doesn't matter the size of the firearm. You could hit that dude with a nuke. It's not going to do anything. He's just going to be back in part seven like next year anyway. It's like you could have gave him a bigger damn gun. I mean, most people, when they carry a gun, like they don't carry that. I, I don't know. It's a glove compartment gun. It's a VW bug. Like, could he have fit a bigger gun in the glove compartment? Box? I mean, I'm not saying. I don't putting, think he could. I'm have. not saying putting dirty, hairy, like 44 Magnum. No, Paul, it's a VW Bug, bro. It's like the smallest fucking car ever made. What? Like, what are you gonna fit in the glove <laughs> compartment, aware. man? Like, what are you gonna fit? <laughs> I'm aware of that, dude. Like, get out of here, man. The thing's like freaking maybe like four inches <laughs> dude, wide. Dude, you could buy 357 Magnums with like a two and a half inch barrel on that son of a bitch. Like, they could have gave him a bigger-looking gun, even if it was a little gun. But I think that's the whole point of the scene, though, is that, you know, it's a glove compartment box. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, the chick didn't even know it was there. Like, if he bust out some huge-ass fucking bazooka, chick's going to be like, (laughs) wait, where did you get that? You're going to be like, you didn't see the fucking huge-ass bazooka laying in the back seat of the VW Bug? It's got to take up the whole back seat, honey. Oh, baby, you knew I had that nuclear warhead. Honey, you didn't control. You didn't recognize my giant elephant rifle I had over here? Yeah, my giant elephant gun. I got it from, I got it from the dude in uh, Tremors. I do, I do like the Tony Goldwyn from uh, from Ghost. I like I like how he is in this scene. I like him getting out of the car, yeah. him getting stabbed, thrown over. I like the the chick's death scene. There is one thing that has always bothered me about her death scene, though. She crawls out of the car. There's a really awesome shot too, where Jason like fucking brings that. It's the same the same spear from the gate that brought him back to life too. Yeah. The spear like in through the front windshield. It's really awesome shot. The windshield of the car. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, it almost freaking killed the uh, the director's wife, who was the actress. Um, doing it, but she gets out of the car and she gets in this mud puddle. And if you look at her hair, her hair is completely dry. And then it cuts to, and we see that you know we see her POV shot where there's nobody there. And then we cut back to her, and her hair is already pre-wet because they've done this take like three or four times, and they don't have time to dry her hair because you know it's low-budget filmmaking. Every minute you spend drying somebody's hair is you're paying every all the crew members. Just sit around and wait while this chick's getting her hair dry, or this actress, I should say. It bothers the shit out of me. It's like the one big mistake I see in this film every time, and it drives me crazy. It's one of those things like yeah, once I you notice it, it, you can't unnotice it. And I, I really do like the uh, the editing here. Bruce Green, the the editor here, I, man, I really liked what he did did with these kill sequences. I know they had a really tough time with the MPAA cutting down on the violence, but the way the violence happens in this film, it's cut so quick, and then it happens. 
and it's over and it's done and it's it's like four shots will cut be cut back to back over the course of like two seconds and then you get like you know like the final punchline of whatever the death scene yeah. is we're getting ready to talk about the the guys that are on the paintball the first dude that's like the freaking the the bigot dude that's all like super sexist that's like goddamn woman goddamn bro she tricked me well, Jason just – the way those shots work is like Jason just grabs the machete, throws him. It's a quick close-up of him, quick like uh, shot of – you know, Jason Jason grabs him, quick shot of him flying, his impact, and then his face goes away. And you see that – you know, the punchline is that there's a smiley face left on the tree from where he hit it. Yeah, in the tree. That kind well, of editing was, was just like, like violence, 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 and then it just stops and it delivers that punchline. Yeah. I really like – how they incorporate that in all the death scenes. I I think it's so well done and, and they did a really good job with this. This is great. We've praised this film a lot. This has the worst fucking sex scene though in the entire Friday the 13th series. This sex scene is weird. Yeah, it's yeah, just man. really bizarre. Like the dude, he, the guy looks like he's on like acid or he's just like on some kind of a hallucinogenic drug eyes are like all rolled up in his head and like how he's bopping to the music and this you know this chick's on top of him and she's clothed i mean there's no nudity in the scene come on man that's court dude but the chick is just sitting there going like oh yeah you're the the, this is the best this is the best yeah this is the best it's like who what kind of pillow talk is that girl what are you what are you doing yeah it's like why are you having sex with all your clothes on what what's going on yeah, here? And not, not, not only that, but who the hell has sex time to a song? I, I do like this actress, but I mean, I do not like this scene. Man, I I love her death scene. She is so good in it, man. That, uh, I think her acting in that in that part when he like jerks her in the bathroom, she. I mean, dude, she's like frailing and kicking around a lot, man. You're not expecting that. Like, you're not expecting Jason just to randomly just grab her and just pull her straight into the bathroom. A scene a little bit later in the movie that I really liked that I thought they the filmmakers took a little bit time to explain some things. But when Tommy gets all the uh, cult books in his ca- in his truck, that piece of crap truck he's yeah. driving around through the whole movie, he doesn't say anything. Yeah. It's not like it completely explained to the audience. You know, it was, it's a nice little subtle – and a quick way to get in and out and get the audience the information they need for the story going forward. His, his delving to the occult is definitely a, an interesting twist. And it, it almost comes across as like a last-ditch effort, too. Where did he get those books and that small little piss yeah. in town? <laughs> yeah. Like, what, did he just go to the local bookstore? I don't know. You know, he did get dropped off on the interstate. So, you know, there could have been like a... Bigger city with the Barnes and Nobles up the road. Okay, let me let me ask you this: What did uh, what exactly did you think of the uh, the car chase? I thought the, like the the sexual innuendo was was definitely interesting between you know the Tommy Jarvis and the Megan character. Why? Why? I don't know why yeah. they keep going to that chick's crotch. It's not like the chick has any camel toe or anything. I and mean, she's just wearing like some 80s jeans, right? I, I know that I see a seam, but in my head, it's female sexual parts. 
<laughs> I just, I, I, it's it's really bizarre, and it's not like they just cut to it once. They cut to it like three or four times, at least yeah, in the, in the course of the cut, cartoon. It's cut to multiple times. I don't know. Like if it was a chick well, laying in a I mean, dude's I, lap, I, I, I would understand, you know, because you could, you know, there, there'd be like a, you know, a, you know, like I would understand. It. Yeah. <laughs> but the dude going down in her lap, what, and she's like wearing jeans and she's driving fast. I'm like, mm, that's just not sexy at all. Okay. Like, so, 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 so what you're saying is like, you know, if she, if she was looking around, like walking around, like cousin fucking Daisy from Duke's Hazard with the short ass shorts on. It would have been totally different. Exactly. Yeah. If she had some Daisy Dukes on, bro, and he had been put in her lap, then that would be different because he would be like looking up her shorts. He'd be looking up a skirt. There'd be something there that would to, to look at. But it just cuts to this shot of this girl in her crotch, and she's she's wearing jeans, man. <laughs> I mean, like it's is a guy just like, huh? Those are jeans. I wonder where she bought those. Interesting. Well, I mean, I guess looking at it like this, though, dude, she kind of shoved his face in her crotch. So after after this all is is going down, uh, I guess the part of the movie that are, the part that feels a lot like the most like a Friday the Thirteenth film is when we go back to these other two counselors that are left watching these kids. Uh, the first yeah. kill, ah, man. This is like a very love-hate relationship because the first kill is everything that I kind of really dislike about the Friday the 13th franchise. Where it's the, oh, so-and-so's been gone all day and I heard a strange noise. Oh, that must be that person that left yeah, like three days ago. Because she hears a noise. She goes up to the window and pours a, yeah. you know, the soft drink out thinking she's going to pour it on her friend's heads. Yeah. Anyway, Jason comes out of the window and grabs her. You know, I, don't I don't know, man. He yanks that girl so hard that she leaves her bunny slippers behind. <laughs> yes, she does. I did like that. That was pretty funny. That made me laugh. It's like he literally yanked that chick out of her damn slippers, dude. But I, I'm not a fan <laughs> of those kind of kills. But what they did with the the next girl, you know, you know the whole thing. Like her her character was was kind of supposed to come across. As, as being like this motherly type. Yeah, I think even Tom McLaughlin said that he was trying to base her character off of, kind of off of Jimmy Lee Curtis from, from Halloween and stuff, because she was kind of portrayed as like a goody two-shoes, you know, motherly type. She she is a good character. She doesn't she didn't really cuss in the, in the movie, but uh, she may have like one or two cuss words, but she didn't really cuss that much. She doesn't have sex, you know, a lot of yep. people in this in this movie don't really follow Friday the Thirteenth slasher death rules. Like usually, you have to be doing drugs, you have to be having sex. You you need to be doing something sinful in order to get killed from the killer in a slasher film. That dude, Kurt, Court and his girlfriend were kind of like third base dry humping. Well, yeah, I mean they they were yeah they were having sex, but they're the only two people in the entire film that are having sex. Like the couple that we talked about, that like t- Tony Goldwyn and uh, Nancy McLaughlin, when they they pull up in the VW Bug. Yeah, they were just driving down the. Yeah, they were just driving down the road. Yeah, they're not doing anything wrong whatsoever. They're not. They're not. They're not talking about having sex. You don't even know if they're married or their boyfriend and girlfriend. You have no idea, and they're just killed. It's kind yeah. of a. It's a little bit of a departure from the. I don't know the, the previous the, movies. Yeah, like you know the slasher formula, just a little bit, not too much. She's nice in the film, 
but she gets probably the worst death. Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought her death was kind of like kind of bad, dude. Well, I mean, it builds it up nice where she thinks the door is like creeping open. There's somebody maybe out there, and she's like, "Oh, oh god, it's okay, it's nobody." And then she goes to close it, and then Jason comes in. I love it that it goes to a wide shot, and all you do is hear what's going on, and you see the exterior of the cabin. I love the edits on these on these death scenes in this film so much. Because, like, that blood hits that window, and then it cuts to another shot, and then she just goes right out that window, and her body kind of flips over the window's edge, and then Jason just comes in and just grabs her. And the aftermath shot. There's a couple of characters, I think, this is like twice, I think the sheriff and then Megan later come into that room later, and it's just blood, like, everywhere. Like, that chick lost every yeah, ounce like of blood. blood and- yeah, like the one chick slippers, those slippers that she got yanked out of. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. It's like, I mean, that bitch is like full of blood and like bloody popcorn. And that whole room is like repainted in blood. It's it's bad. I did think that was weird. They cut to the bloody popcorn shot. I thought that was such a weird insert. I was like, why did they? Why why cut to that close up? Why you know the whole room, because, everything's because, bloody. And it, it's bloody yeah, popcorn. But it kind of came off as like really creepy though, dude. One of those things, because they were eating popcorn earlier, you know, and the one chick was wearing bunny slippers. So I guess it could come across as like, wow, they were just, they were actually decent teenage kids that were trying to just do their thing at the summer camp. I guess we'll, let's just jump into the cops showing up at the camp at the end of the movie. Tommy and Megan. Megan, well, Megan breaks Tommy out of prison while they're <laughs> making their way to Camp Forest Green. Jason just starts picking off these three cops, man. And, dude, this is the, the last act of this film is amazing. He, he really he just like goes ape shit on the fucking cops. Yeah, he, he like squ- he squishes one cop's head. Uh, another one gets a throwing knife in the forehead. And they do this a couple times in the movie. This is something that Tom McLaughlin did that I really, really liked. That I thought was really funny. And you don't really – I didn't really notice it like the first couple times I watched the movie. But like when the cop gets the throwing knife in his head, like he falls back real quick and he lands in a boat and he's dead. And then the next shot is of like the back of a door and you see a dartboard. And that's yeah. – you know, it's like, oh, that's such a great visual gag right there. And it was like the old man uh, caretaker – he said, <laughs> he's sitting there. He's like, "What do those guys think I am? A fart head?" And then it cuts to the kids going, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they're response responding to the counselors." Like, I liked all those moments where we're cutting from one thing and then we're cutting to a response to it from a completely different, you know, scene that has nothing to do with it, but it does tie in. And I liked those, man. I thought those transitions played out really well. There's a little bit more work put into the lighting. There's a, a little bit more work put into the shots. And I'm, look, I don't want to say like he's the greatest director for Friday the 13th. I'm not saying that at all, and I don't even believe that. Uh, personally, I think Steve Miner is the greatest director of the franchise, the guy that did part two and three. We'll get to that some other time. What McLaughlin ha- had to work with here, man, I, I just think – the directorial decisions that he made, where the story was going, where this is happening, what this is going to look like. I thought he did a great job, man. I, I really think that he was a director that had a lot of vision and 
he was able to work in the confines of a Friday the 13th story, still make the movie he wanted to make, and still make it entertaining for fans. For my money, this is the most exciting. I don't know if it's the best, but to me it's the most exciting ending of any film in the entire franchise. I guess it really does represent the final showdown between Jason Voorhees and Tommy Jarvis. Winter Barnes and Noble's got his, uh, you know, occult books. He's finally figured out how to kill Jason with fire and a chain, a big rock, and a John boot. Look, it looks good. The stunt work looks good. That whole scene where um, the lake's on fire or whatever, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was shot at uh, the University of Southern California, and they used a bunch of basically propane lines in the water to make the flame look like it was sitting on top of the water. The one thing that I, I do find kind of weird about the end of this movie, and it's this is real nitpicky here, but the Megan character kind of at the end, like, you know when she first shows up with um, – with Tommy and they, they, they get out of the car and everything. And she's looking for her dad. The minute yeah. she goes into that, uh, that room where the camp counselor's blood is like sprayed all over the walls. And she goes in there. Like the first word that comes out of her mouth when she looks in is daddy. She needs your daddy. Yeah. She's yeah. like, Dude, you got to help me find my dad. And like Tommy is just, Tommy's kind of being a dick at this moment in the film. Yeah. She's running around screaming for her dad and her dad's like, you know, blasting Jason with a shotgun and beating him with a rock and shit. And he gets folded in half. Gets bit like a paperclip. That is, has stuck with me forever. And the sound, man, like, like the vertebrate snapping and shit. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah. Jason's so bad. He doesn't, he doesn't need fucking weapons, man. He'll just fucking take your body well, and snap you in half. Well, technically it's the final death in the film. Well, no, I mean, well, Jason would be the final death in the film. Well, I guess, well, I guess he didn't die. Well, so, I guess, okay, I guess you're, yeah, you're kind of right there. Jason doesn't die. So. And it was a, a super easy effect to pull off. One dude laying down in a hole, legs sticking out. Other dude in the hole, top sticking out. One dude lays back on the other guy. Looks like they're getting bent. Primitive, yet effective. And it totally worked, too. She's She's looking for her dad. They make her where she's kind of helpless and she's very daddy obsessed in this scene and Tommy's off, you know, getting prepared and getting ready for everything. I mean, she comes back at the end to be our our survivor girl, our final girl. But at this section right here, they really just fucking neuter her, man. I don't I don't know if I like what they did with their character in this moment. It's like before you see you saw this like kind of strong, sassy, smart like girl and now it's like She's kind of stripped down, weak, and I need my daddy. Yeah, I mean, like, I understand, like, she wants to go and, like, find her dad and, or, like, save her dad. And I feel like they could have done that and had her be a strong character at the same time. You know, as opposed to make her weak and put her into, like, a helpless damsel in distress kind of mode. I mean, it's literally just for this one particular section of the movie that lasts maybe a minute or two minutes. Yeah, and then, definitely. I mean, other than that, she's back to the same character she was before. Uh, I do, I do like how Jason at the end of the movie, he's just like, you know what? Fuck doors, man. 
I'm I'll just go through walls. I'll walk through doors. It's it's all cool. More or less kick the entire door frame and everything. And and all the kids are up in there like scared shitless of him. Kick the door frame in. What are you talking about, dude? He demolishes like the front of the building. <laughs> the dude Terminator <laughs> strolls in there and walk through this window. I mean, I thought those were cool. There was it's nice. It adds something to the finale that makes it feel a little bit bigger. And I don't know. I enjoy it as an audience member. I appreciate that. Again, these guys are putting the time. They're putting the money. You know, they could, they could, no, they could just totally have Jason walk out the front door. That would nearly be as cool though. Like, no, have him go out the freaking window, man, or walk through the wall. That's fucking badass. The very end of this movie, man, like the Megan character goes out to save Tommy Jarvis and, and she grabs him, and then she has the whole thing with Jason, and she's trying to get the trolling motor started. And when she finally gets it cranked, and that trolling motor goes into the side of his, like, face and neck and shit. Yeah, dude, she really fucked Jason up, man. Did she? She the just trolling took a, motor got him. Yeah, she just took, like, a little teeny propeller motor. Like, Since we're getting a little bit nitpicky. The Crystal Lake must be the shallowest damn lake ever. Okay, I was going to bring that up. Okay, so <laughs> the, that that's a very, very valid point because the end of this movie, the whole thing is that Tommy Jarvis is trying to return Jason Voorhees back to where he came from, Crystal Lake. So how he does this is he gets a big he gets a big rock, he ties a chain around it, and then he's got this other end that he's going to wrap around Jason's neck, which. If you think about it is – actually, don't think about the end of the movie too much because it will ruin the end for you. But – so this guy's just got a chain around his neck and this rock, and it's holding him to the bottom. But he can still grab anybody that's swimming. He can grab their feet and just pull them down. If you were out there swimming across this lake, Jason would probably just grab you and drown you. He's only wearing a chain around his neck. Like – I don't understand. Why does Jason just not, like, take that chain, hold it with his hands, and pull his head out of the fucking chain loop? Why is that chain? It went around his fucking head. It can come off his head. If Jason's strong enough to bend a dude in half and crush somebody's skull, wouldn't he be strong enough just to drag the damn rock out of that shallow, shallow little mud hole? Yeah, okay, so the rock and the chain have huge giant gaps of logic here. Like they're just, they're just, yeah. you could drive a goddamn 18 wheeler through the fucking holes of logic. <laughs> gaps of logic. I mean, cause yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. Gaps of logic. This guy is wearing a chain around his neck. All he has to do is hold the chain and take it off. That's all he has to do. I mean, yeah, he's underwater, so he's floating to the surface. So it's pulling him up. But I would think that, like, I don't know, maybe after, like, four or five years that he could get that chain off for sure. I'm pretty sure that there was another Friday the 13th movie where Jason at least breaks a chain or something to the equivalent strength of a fucking chain. But I do like this ending out with Tommy on this boat. I, I like the fact that he has a plan for how to defeat Jason. It sounds like it should work. You know what I mean? It yeah. makes sense. It's like, theory, yeah. You know, like, yeah, you're going to return him from where he came. That's logical. I buy that. I'm following everything you're saying. This is, this is my, I think this is my favorite ending in the entire franchise. Like, this is definitely not my favorite Friday film, 
but this is definitely my favorite climax. God, it looks so good with that and, fire on the water. Dude, yeah. it fucking looks great. Yeah. It, it, I think it had the most satisfying ending. How do you feel about the last three shots of the movie where you see Jason, he's floating in the water, and then you see his eye opening so you know he's alive? I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool, man. Maybe he actually isn't dead. Maybe he's just still alive down there just resting, just floating. Like, Three feet below the water. The very first time I saw that, I did not even think twice about it. It was just like, oh, yeah, of course, mm-hmm. Jason's going to be alive. But once I saw the yeah. seventh one, and he was just kind of floating in the water dead anyway, I kind of have a problem with this ending. Because I feel like Tommy deserves closure. Like, he deserves to have his story end, and I feel like... It's kind of like the closure of the whole Tommy Jarvis chapter. Exactly, right? Like, yes, let this guy finally fucking win after three bouts with Jason. Let this guy win. Like, they actually put in the script him coming up with a smart, clever way of defeating the evil. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's do this. I also think, uh, well, damn, man, I would have liked to have seen what this movie was like with the alternate ending. With Jason for Jason he's his father, actually showing up at the cemetery... And showing up at the police station. So, yeah, that's true. The caretaker of the cemetery, he ends up meeting in the original script Jason's father. And that was supposed to be like some – I don't know. They were trying to set something up with Jason's dad and maybe that's where the evil kind of really came from kind of thing. Even if it was just put up as like, oh, a deleted scene or something, you know, I would have liked to see it look like filmed. Yeah, I think they just they man they I think they shot that down before it could even get filmed. Because, that was more of Frank Man uh, Frank Mancuso's idea to drop that because he thought that the idea should be completely on Jason and I you know I think he's got a point there. You know I think that's one of the yeah. times where a producer says something where you're like oh you know that that does make sense like let's not take the focus off of Jason because that's what we're everybody in the fucking theater is coming to see Jason. I think that's the right move, but I do think in terms of storytelling and story evolution, I think that's probably – that's the more interesting way to go. There's like a storyboarded scene yeah. on the – I don't know if it's on the DVD, but it is definitely on the Blu-ray where they have it yeah, storyboarded. Yeah, it's on the DVD out. and the Blu-ray. Oh, is it really? Okay, It's cool. on both. Yeah. yeah, it's on both. I am a fan of, of this film. I, I, put it, I, I put it pretty high in terms of like – the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. There are six Friday the Thirteenth films that I absolutely love. Yeah, this is uh, this is this is probably four or five for me. This is pretty high up on the list, and it, you know it's it's for a reason. It started a lot of things. We talked about um, you know what it did in terms of comedy and horror. How this kind of paved the way for Scream. Man, I just I feel like Tom McLaughlin like brought so much. To the script, to the story, to making this a more fleshed out Friday. I like the direction he took it. I feel like they got a lot of stuff right here. A lot more than they normally get right. I feel like this feels different. I feel the passion from the director. You know what I mean? Yeah, he actually wanted to do what he was doing. Man, dude, like the three or four leads in this movie. Tommy, the sheriff, Megan... I think they help elevate the material above just a normal stupid Friday the 13th movie or a stupid slasher or whatever people that do not appreciate 
horror films picked a rip on this movie. I think it pays a lot of respects to movies that came before it. I also think the cast and crew did a phenomenal job. And and with that too, you know, this this movie also has this like kind of like kind of like gothic fantasy feel to it a little bit too as well. You know, I think it's a very special Friday the 13th film, and I think it's done in a very unique way. All right, guys, so that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. You've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, crew spelled C-R-E-W-E, at gmail.com. And if you could please rate us on iTunes and Stitcher, that helps people find out about our show hope you guys enjoyed our first episode of the summer of 86. Uh, I think our next episode is going to be in the summer of 86 retrospective is going to be big trouble in little China. After that, we're going to do two other films. We're not going to tell you what those are though. Cause there's going to be surprises. We're holding those off. Ooh, gotta have some secrets. Damn straight. Tonight's musical selection is Alice Cooper's, Man Behind the Mask from the 1986 film, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Uh-huh.